super powered mind. I'm a mechanical canine. Make sure you can see the lace. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm recording. Hi, my name's Aura Van Dank, and you're watching Murder's a Drag, that show about queer true crime with that drag queen host. You know the one. It's the one you watch or listen to a lot. Hi, here we are, back again. I'm not in a mountain this time. I've got my setback, plus a tree. A little uh, Halloween tree, courtesy of my debit card and Joanne's. It was the collab of the century. The most toxic collab of the century. I'm sorry for the messiness of last week's video, but I was literally in the middle of nowhere trying to throw it together. And so out there in the middle of nowhere that there was like a satellite dish for the Wi-Fi. And also my tire pressure got all messed up from the driveway of this house. You guys heard me talking about it last week. It was treacherous. Plus it was the Van Dank family, so it was just, it was wild. Great fun, that's for sure. I have eyebrows again this week. I didn't draw them on in the mountains. I was sweaty. I was scared that the video wasn't going to come out good. I had to record the end of it on my phone. It was a big, big fucking mess. I just apologize. You guys know it wasn't great. If you were there, you were there. I remember. I saw you there. It wasn't good. So have you guys seen those like life hack videos where they use this makeup remover and like pour it on one of those swab things and blow through it and it gets all bubbly? And apparently it's supposed to suds up if you like blow through it, wop it up, and then Life hack my asshole. You know, life hack for that. So this week, my sources are the documentary film, Julio of Jackson Heights, along with articles from the New York Times from 1990 that did not have an author listed. The New York City LGBT Historical Sites Project. They have this Julio Rivera's Corner page about his life and his death and everything that went into naming this corner after him, which was surprisingly informative. And a Chicago Tribune article by George Curry from 1991 detailing some of the trial. Those are my sources for this week. And I'm going to be covering the life and the murder of Julio Rivera. The 1980s were a time when the gay scene was really starting to come out of the closet, so to speak, where there used to be clubs under the guise of a laundromat or some lie on the sign, but in reality you entered around back and it was a gay club. There were now just signs that said gay club and you would go and you knew what you were getting into when you went there. It wasn't a surprise and you didn't have to know a password. The 80s definitely had a much more free love vibe and and people were kind of left to their own devices as long as they were just having fun and listening to rock and roll. However, that's not to say that homophobia was no longer present because it was still rampant. It was just that it was becoming less taboo. Definitely still a big taboo, making strides in the right direction, very slowly, very, very slowly. But it was noticeable. The gays were way more visible in the 80s. During the late 1970s and into the 1980s, there were a string of about a dozen gay men murdered in Jackson Heights, the area in Queens in New York, all having the same basic circumstances. They all shared the similarity that none of them were solved, and all of these cases were cold cases or just closed homicide due to some drug thing. The community in Jackson Heights grew more and more fearful and cautious because they weren't sure if there was some sort of a serial killer, if there was some sort of government thing trying to take them out because of AIDS or what was going on. They had so much to fear and no answers and no help from the people who were swearing to protect them. At the time, the community had a bad habit of trying to push these things under the rug because they were afraid and they didn't want to sort of deal with that reality that they were living in, but that's not helpful because these things are going to continue to happen and you're not going to be ready for it because you're ignoring the fact that it's going on. They tried to stay safe as possible while pushing this under the rug until they realized it was a matter of being targeted, hunted, and murdered in front of the world while nobody tries to help you. 
you only have yourself to stand up for. And that's what they ended up doing, but not without the case of Julio Rivera. Julio Rivera was a gay Puerto Rican man who was born and raised in the Bronx in New York. Damn, I really zoned out on those brows for a second. That's why they say stos, say stos snatch. That's why they stay so snatched. So yeah, Julio grew up in the Bronx. He was described by all of his friends and family as a super bright and energetic, outgoing kid. He would talk your ear off, want to start a conversation with you, was the entire opposite of shy. Really a social butterfly from the jump. One of those kids who craved social contact, needed to go out with friends, needed to be with friends, make friends. He was that kind of a person. He grew up very close to his brother, Ted Rivera. They did all the typical best friend things together. They were truly the best friend brothers that you see that you don't think could actually exist. It definitely existed between Ted and Julio. They had a very close relationship. Julio's brother, Ted, remembered that his mom used to make comments to Julio because Julio would stay out all the time. He'd go out with friends. Like I said, he was a social butterfly who needed that interaction. And she would kind of tease him and poke fun with him and say the day that she goes, he's not gonna be there because he's gonna be so busy out with his friends. Just kind of that mom guilt to try to make you stay home because you were always out with your friends. We know that. Ted goes on to say that that ended up being something that really stuck in his mind because he realized that when his mother did pass from an unexpected asthma attack that ended up taking her life, Julio was the only one who ended up being with her. He got her in the cab and tried to take her to the hospital, but unfortunately she passed away before they made it. And Ted said that everybody in the family was so upset that they didn't really think to take the time to ask Julio how he was feeling about it, and it seemed that Julio just kind of bottled that emotion up and didn't do much with it, he didn't cope very well, and just kind of tried to drink and party his feelings away, like somebody with that kind of personality will often try to do. Being that socially outgoing and just constantly with friends kind of guy, Julio lived with friends a lot. He would go to their houses, stay there for a few months to a year maybe, and just kind of help them out, live with them, go partying with them. We all have that friend that lives with everybody at least once. Having the very accepting family that he did, Julio would often introduce his lovers slash roommates slash friends to his family. They would always go eat with his family. They were always very close to his family, Julio's gay friends and family, because not a lot of them had that acceptance. So when Julio was dating somebody and he was able to bring him home to mom and his brother and his sister, they were accepted and they had that kind of a family feeling in a real family setting rather than that queer family setting that's a little bit different. So. Julio definitely had that advantage of being able to show people the accepting family that he had, and he didn't take that for granted for not even a minute. He always knew how fortunate he was to have that supportive family. Julio's longtime boyfriend, Dennis Stanton, described Julio as doing some hustling work. He would meet different wealthy men and flirt with them, sleep with them to get the advantages of money, these high-rise apartments that he would be able to live in for as long as he could milk it these really fancy parties, the 80s, cocaine, they could supply him with all of that and he loved being able to do that and he loved living that lifestyle of a hustler or an escort as we would call them today. I guess that was like the 80s, 90s terms for it, hustler. He would live in these really fancy floor-to-ceiling windows, rooftop apartments for a year, maybe less, and then move on to the next guy and had a lot of fun doing it. He was living his best life happy, being as safe as he could be at the time. Julio loved to live his life full of spontaneity and these impromptu trips and vacations. One time with his good friend Alan Sack, he was called over to the bar at like 4 a.m. saying that he had a phone call and 
Alan was on the phone telling him that he was getting ready to go to Jones Beach. He was leaving at 6.30 a.m. Uh, if he wanted to go with him to meet him at his apartment or he'd pick him up from the city and bring him back to Queens to get ready and they'd go over to Jones Beach and they were going on a vacation. Alan was like, I have beer, I have sodas, I have chips, I have snacks, let's do this. And then Julio was like, are you kidding me? Yeah, I mean, fuck yeah, let's do this thing. So he leaves the club, goes immediately to a grocery store, is like, I need to match him on everything that he bought. So I'm getting beer, I'm getting soda, I'm getting chips, I'm getting snacks. So he comes loaded with like $40 worth of groceries. Alan has like $40 worth of groceries, beer, fun stuff to do while we're at the beach. And they have a fucking blast. And this was all at like 4 a.m. to 6.30 a.m. By 9 a.m. they were on the beach partying. So that was just kind of the person that Julio was. And the person, or people rather, that his friends were. Definitely a fun crowd, that's for sure. Julio was obviously having a ton of fun living that lifestyle, but that lifestyle that he was living didn't come without its risks and fears to live in. In that documentary I watched about Julio, his brother told a story about a night when Julio called him frantic saying that he needed help and a ride home. Ted, being the good and close relationship kind of brother that he was with Julio, got out of bed immediately, ran over there. It was an ungodly hour of the night and he was just up and ready. And he pulls up and sees cops outside. It's just a big old mess, so he goes inside to find Julio. Inside this very nice apartment, his brother Ted finds Julio with this guy that I guess he had met named Harold, and Harold is the presumed hustle in this situation that Julio has been hustling, and apparently Harold had called over some guy because Harold had mob connections, and the guy that he called, I guess, was in debt to the mob or something. Whatever the case was, he came running when Harold called. He was like Harold's bitch, basically. Dude gets there, and Harold tells Julio, like, I want you to do something to this guy. And I don't know what that something is because Ted never said, and I'm not sure if it was like a gay sex thing that Ted just wasn't comfortable talking about because he's a straight man, or if it was like some snuff film murder thing that Ted didn't want to say because Harold has mob connections and might try to kill Ted. Julio tells Harold, fuck that, I'm not gonna do it, and Harold goes berserk. Ted said when he pulled up, Harold was like foaming at the mouth basically, red-faced, angry, angry, angry. So like cocaine rage level angry. And Julio was terrified, just kind of standing in the corner looking at this whole scene unfolding in front of him. And the cops were like, are you Julio's brother? Yeah, you can take him and get the fuck out of here. So that's what they did. And they never really found out what happened other than the fact that the apartment was trashed. There were paintings slashed and on the floor, things were shattered and thrown around but Julio didn't really want to talk about it, and so they didn't. And apparently after that, smartly enough, Julio slowed down his hustler lifestyle and kind of traded that in for a safer time and a safer lifestyle that he was going to live. Julio told his friends and family that he was going to be leaving Greenwich Village in Manhattan because of how dangerous it had become. He was concerned about the growing violence against the LGBT community in Greenwich Village, and yes, Greenwich Village is the gay area of New York, but it was still dangerous to be gay in the gay area of New York because there were active killers at the time, there were people being murdered left and right, hate crimes, bias crimes as they were called at the time were being committed, and nobody was doing any detective work, any homicide work, nothing was being done to try to get justice for these gay people, trans people, lesbian people, bisexual people. Everybody who was being murdered that wasn't straight didn't get the time of day. And that's what was so scary about this. Not only were you being murdered and hunted for who you were, but 
you couldn't be gay in the gay village of the city that you lived in because you had no protection. And I just want to highlight that that's only 30 years ago. So when people really feel like somehow within that time we've just completely gotten civil rights, we have achieved it, there's no more homophobia, there's no more transphobia, racism is gone, it's 2020 girl. No, no. All of that is still very much alive and prevalent, but they play the game of distraction news now so that you don't see that it's still happening and you get a false sense of security. This violence and disproportionate murder that was occurring in the gay community was no secret to the members of that community, but they kind of tried to keep it a secret, so to speak, because of how scared they were about it. If they didn't talk about it, and they didn't make it public, and they just kind of tried to sweep it under the rug, then it wouldn't be as real, and it wouldn't be this everyday looming fear that they had on the front of their minds. Instead, it would go to the back of their minds. Not a healthy coping mechanism, but it definitely is something that we've seen in almost every gay community throughout history. They were starting to realize that no matter how far back you tucked that club away, there was always going to be that walk home and there was always going to be somebody waiting to be violent or to hurt you because they knew where you were and they knew what you stood for and they hated you for that. And clearly the law enforcement at the time gave less than no fucks because they were still actively raiding gay bars and beating gay people in the streets just for being gay, using excessive force on every queer person that they encountered in the street. It was a disgusting time. Not that the times have gotten very much better now, but they've definitely made some improvements. But it was truly, truly just disgusting back then. Everywhere you looked, there was no silver linings, truly. When Julio moved back to Queens, into the Jackson Heights area. He began working as a bartender and for all intents and purposes broke off things with Dennis. They were definitely in an open relationship, he and Dennis, but it's just something that either Dennis didn't understand or wasn't comprehending because he seemed to be okay with the fact that Julio slept around. He said that Julio told him once that he'd always be coming back to his bed at the end of the night. Dennis still just couldn't take it, so early forms of open relationships and polyamory were very rough and didn't always work out so great. Living in Jackson Heights, you could say Julio was essentially living his dream because he was bartending when he wasn't partying at the clubs and partying at the clubs when he wasn't bartending. So he was doing everything that he ever wanted to be able to do during the day and during the night. That knack for social interaction and his extrovert personality was truly fulfilled while he was living in Jackson Heights. After the night of July 1st, 1990, in the early hours of July 2nd, Julio and his friend Alan were walking home after a night of drinking, and when they walked to the intersection that they always walked to, they said goodnight to one another and made their ways to their respective homes. Julio turned toward and started walking through the schoolyard of PS69. That area, maybe because it was PS69, was a popular cruising spot for gay men, either because of the name of the school, 69, or because it had a lot of dark corners that were good for sucking dick. While walking through the schoolyard, Julio noticed three men wandering about in there and presumably thought they were also there to cruise and hook up. Julio was approached by then 21-year-old Eric Brown and the then 19-year-old Isat Beachy. Presumably the two men sexually propositioned Julio to lure him further into the schoolyard towards the alleyway where Daniel Doyle was waiting, where the then 21 one-year-old Daniel Doyle was waiting with weapons to beat Julio to death. The two men who had lured him back there began beating Julio with the claw end of a hammer, a bottle, and a monkey wrench. Once they felt they had beat him badly enough, Daniel Doyle stepped in with a four-inch kitchen knife and began stabbing Julio repeatedly until 
they felt that they had done the job and they ran away. Ultimately leaving him severely beaten, bleeding, and clinging to his life on the sidewalk. Alan Sack heard some commotions and responded to them, turning around back in the direction where he had parted ways with his friend and noticed that it was, in fact, his friend Julio laying on the floor covered in blood. He asked Julio if he knew who'd done this to him, and Julio just shook his head no. He was rushed to the hospital where Julio was later pronounced dead, and once the news broke, people were devastated, terrified, but this time, the difference was they were also angry. When the police called Julio's brother, Ted, to notify him what happened, the police told him his brother had been murdered and that it was probably drug-related because, quote, you know how these things are. They offered no condolences and no explanation, just simply stated that his brother had been killed, and that was that. The vigils that were being held in Julio's memory were garnering crowds of around 200 every time they did it, and these vigils became protests because they wanted to demand justice for Julio, where the other people, like Julio, who had been murdered, hadn't received that justice. The members of these vigils gone protests' tempers were wearing quite thin because police still weren't doing any active work to solve Julio's case. So they amped up their protests by going to protest directly outside of the homes of people who could really make a difference in this case. Like the district attorney and the lead detectives and the chief of police. Those places started to be flooded with protesters who were calling for justice for these LGBT people who were being murdered and their cases filed away to never be touched again. They gave Julio's case as soon as it was made into a case to a detective who was on vacation for two weeks. They gave this case to somebody's empty desk so that it would just sit there for two weeks, nothing being done, nobody being questioned, interrogated, arrested, nothing, absolutely nothing being done because they didn't like gay people. For the first time in the history of the Jackson Heights LGBT community, almost the entire community was out in the streets protesting and participating in these vigils in Julio's memory in an attempt to make a difference, to start causing some change. Their vigils garnered a lot of attention and therefore put a lot of pressure on the case itself to be solved and for arrests to be made for something to happen in this case. Like I said, the case was given to a detective who was on vacation for two weeks, so that sat there for two weeks, and at the scene of the crime, the clawed hammer that had been used to bludgeon Julio was left there covered in blood, as well as a bloody t-shirt of Julio's that was left there. Now, all the evidence on it was destroyed because of rain and being out in the elements for that long. And it was just simply looked over because it was a gay murder and the responding people did not care. That really revealed that no detective work had been done at all before they were forced and reprimanded and made to do the work. Law enforcement turned out the three individuals who participated in this attack, Eric, Isat, and Daniel. Daniel being the man who stabbed Julio multiple times with that four-inch kitchen blade, happened to be the son of a retired NYPD detective, and just so happened to be offered a plea deal where he could testify and be charged with second-degree manslaughter instead of first-degree premeditated murder because he admitted that he went out with the intention to kill somebody, brought a kitchen knife, found somebody, killed somebody, but it's just manslaughter because oops. And I told all my friends, so now I get to go. The interesting part about this trial is that it was the first trial in the New York State's history that had been tried as a biased crime which is a hate crime because Julio was murdered for being gay. That was a fact that was just a fact, even in the eyes of the law at this point. 
which is small silver linings. Daniel, the person who physically killed Julio with a knife, never had to go to trial because he took that plea deal to snitch on his friends and get this amazing sentence reduction, which it's the most unfair. I don't, it blows my mind that that's illegal and that that happened and people let it happen. Daniel, Mr. Dick Fart, ended up with only eight and a third years in prison for brutally, cold-bloodedly murdering somebody in the name of the dumbest skinhead gang. By the way, these three guys were skinheads in a gang called the Doc Martin Skinheads. I'm not, this isn't, I'm not understanding. Daniel also admitted to being the one that organized this search, suggested that they go out and look for a gay person to bludgeon and beat to death. He admitted to being the person who quite literally premeditated this crime and was still not charged with first degree premeditated murder in a case that was already considered a hate crime. Daniel was even quoted saying, we killed him because he was gay. That's a direct quote from that murderer. And still, eight and a third years in prison for that. The other two, Esat and Eric, were tried for second degree murder, which makes no sense to me, and had the testimony of Daniel going against them, and they were both sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. However, there were apparently some procedural errors in the trial that caused a mistrial, and ended up getting them a second trial and make them eligible for bail to get out of jail, which Isat did, jumped bail, and fled the country. He even ended up getting a feature on America's Most Wanted, and it's truly fucking crazy just how this case was handled, or not handled for that matter. Eric did not run away, and he was retried. He ended up getting sentenced to the same thing 15 years to life, and was released after not even 15 years. Being over 30 years since this case, that leaves all three of the men responsible for murdering this man in cold blood based solely on his sexuality in the name of literal neo-Nazism free to walk. Well, I take that back. Isa actually was murdered in Mexico in Tijuana in a drug deal gone wrong because he continued to do crazy shit like that and started selling drugs when he ran away to Mexico because he was a murderer and he was murdered. So I guess I don't really care. Karma? I'm not sure how I feel about that one. That's just kind of whole wild to me. That's like cosmic karma for Isat, but the other two men walking free having killed somebody in their lifetime. Brutally killed somebody in their lifetime. Julio certainly did not die in vain, because if it wasn't for the death of Julio that inspired the activism of the founders of the Queen's Pride Festival, there would be no pride in Queens, and Julio is really the reason for how strong the pride and the gay community is in Jackson Heights. Since his murder, the community and the activists living in Julio's area of Jackson Heights have made it a mission to make that area a truly safe place for gay, transgender, bisexual, and lesbian individuals to live their lives actually free and actually out of the closet. Also being the first case in the state of New York where people were tried in a bias crime for murdering somebody based on their sexual orientation, Julio's case set a precedent for future cases making it harder for people to get away with murdering somebody, which should be everybody's goal. Make it hard for people to get away with murder. The Julio Rivero Anti-Violence Coalition was also founded after his death, which works to prevent and help victims of violence committed against LGBT individuals based on their sexual orientation. Julio's brother 
also took Julio's cremains to the Queen's Pride Parade in 2017, which I thought was a really beautiful gesture to bring Julio to the place that he created, to the to the festival that wouldn't be a festival if it hadn't been for the sacrifice that he never wanted to make. And finally, at the corner of 78th and 37th Avenue in Jackson Heights in Queens is a street sign that reads, Julio Rivera's Corner, permanently commemorating the community of Jackson Heights, beloved and unlikely martyr. Everybody knows what that means. I'm gonna put on some lashes. I'm gonna put on a wig. It's transformation time. Well, that's the finished look for this week. The hair is literally too big to fit in frame, but she's gorgeous. I hope you guys learned something this week about Julio Rivera and the laws and change that came from his murder. I hope you guys learned that the fight is far from over and that there's still so much work to be done. That's for fucking sure, guys. Remember that, guys. Okay, guys, she hasn't mentioned her existential dread. She must be finally healthy. Maybe it's Maybelline. Maybe it's major depressive disorder. Who knows, Deborah? Surely not me. Anyway, stick around for next week. I hope you're keeping up with all the social media at Murders a Drag, at Aura Van Dank. We're Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're everywhere, baby. I wanna add some freckles before I'm done. One second. Who doesn't like freckles? They make me so cute. Okay, I'll see you guys next week. I hope you like my huge hair. Mwah.